Let's, let's go ahead and uh, begin with prayer this evening. So let's uh, stand and ask God's blessing upon our study. Heavenly Father, Thou art uh, good unto us and has blessed us so greatly uh, with knowledge of Thee. Not because we are worthy, uh, not because we are better than any others, but Thou hast opened our eyes, Thou hast shined forth the light of Thine illumination from the brightness of Thy countenance upon us. We thank Thee, Lord, uh, as we now have the uh, honor and uh, the privilege to gather again to consider what is recorded uh, by Thee in Thy Word. Uh, give to us, Lord, uh, hearts filled with love uh, and faith and hope and obedience as we approach Thee and cleanse us of our sins. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to cover a whole lot of ground as far as verses this evening um, because we're going to spend most of our time talking about a question that uh, may have some relevance, uh, practically speaking, in the church, um, and we'll talk about that. But we're going to be considering was Judas present um, at the Lord's Supper, and uh, or was he already departed uh, when the Lord's Supper was instituted. Look with me at uh, John 13, verses 31 through 32. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Uh, let's just compare the various accounts that we find in the Gospels. So I'm going to read these and we'll refer back to them. Matthew 26. verses 17 through 30. So let's, there will be some repetition, but there's also some differences that we want to note in order to answer that question. So Matthew 26, 17 through 30 says, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful 
and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung an hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Mark's account is very similar uh, to what we've just read in Matthew, Mark 17, I'm sorry, Mark 14, beginning with verse 17. Mark 14, 17 through 26. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve, and as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto him, one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread and blessed and brake it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink it no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung in him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. And then finally, Luke's account, Luke 22, verses 14, this is the longer section, 22 through 49, uh, 22 through, uh, let's see, tw Luke 22, 14 through 39. So 22, verse 14. Now this is, uh, this is slightly different. Um, and again, we'll point the differences out um, when we get to, to that point. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. And he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
Now that section, I, those verses I just read, in Matthew and Mark, those verses occur after the Lord's Supper. In Luke, they occur before the Lord's Supper. Okay, that, that's one difference in the accounts. Verse 17, And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So uh, here, identifying the uh, betrayer uh, in Luke's account occurs after the supper is instituted in Matthew Mark identifying this, the betrayer occurs before the supper is instituted. Okay, that's, that's a, a critical uh, difference between the accounts. And uh, I continue. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. There was also a strife among them which of them should be accounted the greatest. And he said unto them, the king of the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors, but ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. For whether is greater he that sitteth at meat, or he that serveth, is not he that sitteth at meat, but I am among you as he that serveth. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations, and I appoint you, or unto you, a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And uh, I don't think I need to read through verse 39, uh, the important uh, verses related to uh, the question I've asked, I've already addressed those uh, verses. So, just by way of review, just to so bring us up to speed, in the previous study, the Lord Jesus uh, uh, specifically identified who his betrayer was by saying the one to whom he gave the sop. The sop was the unleavened bread that was dipped in vinegar. He said, Jesus said, that is his betrayer in John 13, 26. Jesus then dipped the sop into the vinegar, gave it to Judas. Now, as we noted last time, that was likely only heard by John. Uh, John is, and I explained the, the way in which a table at that time would be set, that they would have a table and they wouldn't be sitting at a table like in Mike, Michelangelo's The Last Supper. They would be reclining at the table. And so they'd have one knee or one elbow, uh, one elbow on uh, the couch 
uh, and then be eating um, uh, with the other hand. And so uh, John was on one side of Jesus, and it was appeared that Judas was on the other side of Jesus. Um, those would be the two most honored places around the table. And um, uh, John asks the question after Jesus says uh, what he does by way of one uh, sitting at the table there would betray him, uh, that he says, ask, Peter waves and gestures at at uh, John and says, uh, ask him who it is. And uh, so John asks him who it is. And uh, the response of, of the Lord Jesus, again in John 13, uh, 26, he says, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And then he dips it and gives it to Judas, as we've noted. Um, but that was, again, um, probably just whispered to Jesus, the question, and then the answer back to John whispered. Because uh, when Jesus says to Judas immediately after that, in John 13, 27, that thou doest do quickly, uh, all the disciples are very confused. Um, none of them seem to understand what Jesus has already done by way of offering the sop to Judas. So it most likely that was done more privately, that John asked Jesus, whispered to him, and Jesus whispered back to John, uh, the one to whom I give the sop is, is the one that will betray me. And then uh, after Jesus says to Judas, go ahead, this is the plan that you have conceived. Uh, go forth and uh, fulfill it. Uh, the disciples uh, thought uh, John or Judas was going. Some uh, thought that uh, since he had the bag that he was going to either uh, buy and purchase more supplies for the the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Others thought perhaps that he went out uh, in order to, to help the poor, to give something to the poor, but they, none of them, according to verse 28, it says, no, now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. They didn't understand. And so uh, that was said publicly, that thou doest, quickly that Jesus said so that all the disciples could hear but they didn't understand that part of it and then we then we note that um, that upon receiving the sop Judas says went out immediately and it was night in verse 31 as we read already therefore when he was gone out now interesting uh, the Lord's Supper in, in John's account doesn't even appear. Uh, there is no reference at all to the Lord's Supper in John 13. Um, there is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So uh, we don't have, from just reading John chapter 13, we don't have any reference as to when Judas was identified in relationship to the Lord's Supper, whether before or after that occurred. So we can't, we can't specifically appeal to John to answer that question. 
What we can, however, appeal to John by way of information is that as soon as he was identified as being the one who would betray Christ, as soon as that happened, according to John, immediately, it says in John 13, 30, he went out. So after he's identified, then he went out. The question is, when was he identified? Was he identified before or after? Matthew and Mark, as I said, mention that this occurred before, that he was ident identified as being the betrayer before. And if so, then he immediately went out and then the Lord's Supper was instituted. Luke uh, indicates uh, in his gospel that it was after the Lord's Supper uh, that Judas was identified. And if that was the case, then immediately after the Lord's Supper, he was identified as being the betrayer, and then he left at that point. So this, uh, this is a controverted uh, matter uh, amongst uh, um, scholars, you know, going way back uh, and to be able to reconcile this, um, these accounts in answering this particular question. So reputable scholars from the past and from the present uh, note that this is a matter of controversy. And um, most of them take a position one way or the other. But I, I think that it's important that we don't you know, make this a, an issue of such significance and such importance that it would you know, divide us um, uh, from one another over since it is uh, controverted in this in this manner. I want to say that these are not contradictions uh, between these accounts. Many times uh, in the gospel accounts, the chronology may not be the same in the various accounts because the Holy Spirit was not emphasizing through that writer chronology, but was rather emphasizing uh, something more related to a logical connection, not a chronological connection, but a logical connection or a thematic uh, connection. And that what was what was important in that particular account. So that may be the reason for the differences when we find differences in, in chronology. Um, some of the accounts at that point are emphasizing the, the chronological order of events, uh, and other, another account or two may be emphasizing the logical connection, uh, something thematically, and chronology then is not what is most important. Uh, to that particular gospel writer and is not uh, what the Holy Spirit, since we believe that each of these gospels are inspired by the Holy Spirit, then um, it wasn't in, obviously important to the Holy Spirit, likewise at that point, to emphasize the chronological order. So Jesus declares here 
And I, I think that just to give you my thoughts on this, as far as uh, where I lean, as I said, I think you'll find good men on either side uh, of the, the question, both in the first, second Reformation, currently. So it's not, it's not an issue that we can clear, because it, it, it's not real clear, obviously. You, have, you, you, you don't have um, something so absolutely clear. I think if it was that clear, then all the parties would agree on what is being said. So I think that we need to recognize that. I tend to agree um, with the chronological order uh, uh, that Matthew and Mark give, that the identification of the betrayer occurred before the Lord's Supper. And, and we know from John 13, 31, that immediately after the identification of the betrayer, he left. So that according then to Matthew and Mark, I believe, and comparing that with John, that uh, it would mean that Judas was not present at the time the Lord's Supper was instituted. He was gone by that time. I think that uh, the, the issue with Luke's Gospel, uh, again, I would simply suggest that the chrono chronology is not what is most important here to Luke or the Holy Spirit uh, with regard to where the um, betrayer was at the time that the Lord's Supper was uh, instituted. Uh, that doesn't seem to be um, what is emphasized, distinguishing that. But verse 21, Luke twenty-two twenty-one. Jesus does say, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined, but woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. So uh, if, again, this is not following a chronological order, uh, then, then uh, it would be uh, something by way of connection with uh, what the Lord Jesus says in the bread and the cup and uh, and placing for some reason and again even if we can't figure it out ourselves uh, so fine-tune it that we know with certainty why it occurs that way um, we do know again from other accounts comparing the gospel accounts that there are differences in chronology uh, but that doesn't mean that it's a contradiction. It simply means, as I said, that uh, it's emphasizing uh, either a th thematic connection or a logical connection with something in that context. And so, um, if again, before moving on, if the uh, matter here Let's, let's just assume that uh, Judas was present at the Lord's Supper. Uh, would that be, again, um, a violation of some uh, biblical truth or biblical principle uh, that we uh, would say that, that that's impossible, that that could happen? 
And I would say, though it may cause some unsettledness on the part of people that Jesus, though the other disciples did not know, Jesus knew that he was a devil, and yet uh, he uh, administered or instituted the, Lord with, uh, the Lord's Supper with Judas being present. And so in some, some minds, that might be a real problem, um, that if um, Judas was present, uh, why would the Lord... Uh, why would the Lord include him? Uh, why would uh, he not be excluded? Um, I would simply point out, if in fact Judas was present at the time the Lord's Supper was instituted, and Judas was given the bread and the wine, as the other disciples were, that, that doesn't have to present an insurmountable problem. Because, uh, again, we exclude people from the Lord's Supper not based upon private sins, but upon public scandals. Um, and it was not yet a public scandal. Jesus knew what was going on, but he had not revealed all the details to, to the apostles at that time. Again, he had identified his betrayer, but they didn't understand um, they did so it was not yet a, a public scandal and I think that that would probably be the way to respond uh, if indeed G Judas was present at the Lord's Supper when it was instituted um, however on the other hand if it was uh, the fact that Judas was not present at the Lord's Supper and that he was identified before and that he um, left immediately upon being identified, then it's really, there's really no question or issue there uh, to have to wrestle with at all because he wasn't, he wasn't present. And uh, perhaps again, um, those who uh, take that view might say, well, that was the way, that was the Lord's way of removing somebody who did not belong at the Lord's Supper, identifying him before, since Jesus knew. Um, perhaps, again, that might be um, similar to uh, the question, what should a minister do if a minister is in a situation where he knows of some private sin uh, on the part of a private, you know, a sin that is of a very significant nature that's not been repented of on the part of uh, uh, someone coming to the Lord's Supper who wants to come to the Lord's Supper. Uh, uh, what should he do? No doubt some would say, well, um, uh, he shouldn't administer the supper to that person if he tru truly knows and uh, this has been confessed to him and uh, or, or he, he has seen or he has observed or something and, uh, and it's happened so suddenly or quickly or, or something that he can't follow through with Matthew 18. You know, those kinds of hypothetical situations, what should he do? I'm sure some would say, if it's not become yet a, a public scandal, then uh, the minister should not exclude the man. Uh, uh, on the other hand, some may say, uh, if he knows that the minister knows of that sin and it's of a, such an egregious, uh, uh, you know, it, it's reached that kind of a level 
that uh, if, if it became known publicly that it would exclude him from coming to the Lord's Supper, then he should not uh, serve the man. He should not administer. So there would be even, even if it were a more present type of a issue, I, I dare say that there would be people falling on, uh, you know, on different sides of that question. So again, um, I, I simply raise the, uh, the matter uh, to, uh, it's not one that is, is uh, easily deciphered and, and easily settled. I think that people, good people, can stand on either side, but I thought it was worth at least discussing uh, so that you realize uh, that there is there is a, a controversy surrounding um, that uh, question whether Judas was present at the Lord's Supper or not. And uh, again, you can do your own study, you know, your own evaluation. Uh, I've given you just a brief overview uh, of the uh, arguments for and against, and so you can uh, think about that and uh, consider those matters on your own. So, verse 30, back to John 13, now verse uh, 31. Again, therefore when he was gone out, that is when Judas was gone out, uh, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. So, if we were to insert uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, holding the view that Judas was not present at the Lord's Supper, we would be inserting it after uh, verse 31, or after the first part of verse 31. Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said. So again, sometime after verse 31, in John 13 would be where the Lord's Supper would occur, even though it's not actually mentioned here in John 13. If he was present at the Lord's Supper, then it would have uh, been sometime, um, I would say, before verse 21. Um, uh, verse 21 uh, in John 13 Jesus is troubled, he testifies, uh, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. So again, if, if uh, it's Luke's account that we're following, then the Lord's Supper would have occurred before verse 21 because now in verse 21 in John 13, he begins to uh, identify who his betrayer is. Uh, and and uh, Luke's account, as we noted, uh, the Lord's Supper occurs first, and then uh, the betrayer is identified. So it would be before verse 21. If we're following Luke's account, it would be after verse 31 if we're following um, Matthew and Mark's account, most likely. So Jesus uh, declares that he, the Son of Man, now has been glorified. The tense of the verb uh, is aorist passive. In, in the Greek tense, that means um, uh, literally, uh, we could translate that, uh, the Son of Man has now been 
glorified, already been glorified. And uh, so the question arises, how was you know, Jesus glorified? Because most, the, most of the time it speaks of Christ being glorified in his death and his resurrection and uh, his ascension, those events. So how was he glorified? Now has been glorified. And that emphasizing the word now, it seems to be a pointing to something that's just happened. Um, and... And I think that uh, uh, that, I would suggest, that's just happened uh, at the beginning of verse 30, between when it says, therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said. So after Judas went out, how was he glorified? Well, I, I would suggest, and again, this is another reason why I would lean toward uh, the view that um, the Lord's Supper was, was instituted after Judas departed rather than uh, before he departed. Um, obviously, I, I think that the, uh, the tense of the verb here, if this now is the Son of Man glorified, has been glorified, refers to the Lord's Supper, then that would indicate that, um, uh, at least give us a hint that that occurred after Judas left the room. And I do think that uh, the, the now, the emphasis on now that Jesus uses that word, uh, points to that truth, that he's not, he, that he's saying that something that just happened uh, has glorified him. And I, I would suggest that what had just glorified him, though it's not specifically mentioned, is the institution of the Lord's Supper. Certainly, God was glorified in the ministry of Jesus Christ throughout his ministry. Um, John eleven four, 4, when uh, Lazarus, the Lord Jesus, is... Um, explaining to the disciples why he has not yet left to go to Lazarus, who has been reported to him to be sick and to death. Uh, he says uh, in John eleven four, the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So that's one example in which God was glorified and glorified his Son through his ministry, but that would have occurred, I think, throughout his ministry. But something has happened in this particular context that Jesus draws attention to when he says, now is the Son of Man glorified, or has been glorified. So I, again, not to uh, continue to unnecessarily um, emphasize this, but I think that that what has just happened was the institution of the Lord's Supper in that which is signified and sealed in the Lord's Supper, namely that the bread signifies the body of, of Christ given to bear the wrath of God for his people and that the wine signifies his blood that was shed to cleanse the sins of God's people. That particular institution of the Lord's Supper is uh, a way in which 
Jesus says, uh, God is glorified in the Son by way of his institution of the Lord's Supper. The glory of Jesus Christ, uh, I would submit to you, wasn't simply manifest uh, at that time in the Lord's Supper, but is continuing to be manifested. God's glory through Jesus Christ continues to be manifested uh, as the Lord's Supper is administered even in our day, throughout history, and even at our time. God is glorified uh, by the administration of the Lord's Supper in the bread and in the wine. I, I want to just, uh, before um, concluding our study this evening, I do want to talk a little bit about the different views of the Lord's Supper, uh, since that's what we've been kind of addressing and um, basically four different views um, of the Lord's Supper. There's, there's the uh, memorial view. There is the Lutheran view of consubstantiation. There's the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation. And there's the Reformed view of the real spiritual presence of Christ. Not a bodily presence, but a real spiritual presence of Christ. I think uh, to point out that the, that the Lord's Supper, even uh, as explained by the Apostle Paul, is not simply remembering. It is remembering. It is there is a memorial aspect to the Lord's Supper. We are remembering what Christ accomplished. So it's not to deny that there's no memorial sense at all uh, in the administration of the Lord's Supper, but it's simply to say, if that's all that one believes uh, we are doing in receiving the Lord's Supper, that falls far short of what the Scripture uh, gives to us by way of the significance of the Lord's Supper. For in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, in, as Paul is addressing the, the Lord's Supper, notice what he, what he says. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the, the words that Paul uses here, I believe very clearly, tell us that uh, the bread and the wine in the Lord's Supper are not merely remembering Christ's body and blood offered for us, but there is something spiritual going on, uh, that there is a communion with the body of Christ. There's a communion with the blood of Christ. Um, and uh, that's, that's far more than what the memorial view teaches. Um, the memorial view is only saying we look back 
and that's basically just like an anniversary. Uh, you, you're just remembering what occurred. But uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 uh, seems to indicate that we're uh, to go farther than simply remembering what occurred, that there is an actual communion and sharing and partaking um, uh, in the body and the blood of Christ. Uh, at a spiritual level, we will see, um, not at a uh, bodily or corporeal, um, uh, in a corporeal way. Uh, the, the view of the uh, presence of Christ, and, and so we'll now look at the, uh, the, la the last three views, the Lutheran, consubstantiation, the Roman Catholic, transubstantiation, and the uh, Reformed, uh, the real spiritual presence. So let's uh, look at those very, very briefly here. The Lutheran view... Uh, and the Roman Catholic view are similar in this respect, that they um, believe that there is a real bodily presence of Christ in um, the partaking of the bread and the wine. Now they differ as to how that is the case, but they both, both views believe in the real bodily presence of Christ. Whereas the Reformed view does not believe in the real bodily presence of Christ, but rather in the real spiritual presence of Christ. So the Lutheran view, um, well, let's start with the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view uh, uh, would uh, teach, and I believe falsely so, but would teach that the elements, the bread and the wine, at a certain point of consecration by the priest are transformed into, they're, they're, uh, they are actual bread and actual wine, but at some point at the consecration, they are miraculously turned into uh, the body and the blood of Christ. Not outwardly, uh, not uh, what one can observe, but the substance is changed. Not the, not the outward appearance, just the substance has changed. And so that would be, again, um, the, the Roman Catholic view. Um, and uh, I'll, uh, I'll address my uh, objection uh, to both the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view uh, at the same time because I think there's, there's a, a mutual objection to both of them that they both share in common. The Lutheran view of consubstantiation does not believe that the, the bread and the wine are changed or transformed uh, uh, from bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, but they believe that the, body, the actual body of Christ uh, is um, so much uh, not in but around uh, the bread and the wine that one cannot help in partaking of the bread and wine to partake of the actual body and blood of Christ. So con meaning with, so uh, there's a, uh, 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 
uh, us, you know, the Lutheran view again is just that the body and blood of Christ are with uh, the elements. And so that uh, when one partakes the elements, one also partakes of the actual literal body and blood of Christ. Now, again, um, both of these views hinge upon what Jesus says, uh, this is my body. Uh, this is my body, and uh, one has to interpret what the word is means. Uh, does it mean that this is my body? Well, that would, again, I think just thinking in, in terms of the context, that would seem very strange since Christ's body, when he instituted it, was right there, right? So uh, were they, what part of his body um, uh, was uh, taken and became the bread as he was saying this is my body what part of his blood from what part of his body uh, uh, became uh, the wine at that particular point as he's actually uh, not standing but as he's actually there he's reclining with them at the table uh, so again I think that um, that needs to be answered and uh, if someone simply resorts to well it's a mystery uh, we simply take the words but uh, the, it's a mystery I think that uh, that we need to uh, in such cases compare scripture with scripture I mean that's that's something a question that needs to be asked about that text but I think that uh, um, we need to understand that um, when the Lord Jesus says, for example, in 1 Corinthians, or the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that the rock which gave forth water uh, to Israel in the wilderness, and that rock was Christ. Um, uh, we, I don't think that anybody is going to um, say that the, the rock was literally Christ, uh, that it signifies Christ. And, you know, the verb to be, is, am, are, was, were, be, being, been, you know, however the, the, uh, the verb to be is, is uh, used in a particular sentence, um, I think that we need to understand that the word um, may, in fact, not mean literally so, uh, but may mean um, figuratively so, symbolically so. And, and that's, a, that's not a, a ridiculous interpretation when we see that Jesus says, I am the door. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so I, I think that uh, that's something uh, that as, as a Protestant, as Reformed, I think that we stand on very solid ground, uh, that we do not, uh, we are not compelled uh, to that particular interpretation. Moreover, um, if Christ's body uh, is basically uh, in either the Lutheran view or the Roman Catholic view, uh, if, he, if he is bodily present 
whether in the element or around the element, then he has an omnipresent body. Um, and he's not a human being. Um, uh, that's, not, that's not humanity. Uh, humanity, and now he can be everywhere present as to his deity, as he is God, but not as to his body. His body is local. His body is uh, uh, confined to space, to a particular location. Uh, his body is not, again, um, uh, omnipresent. I think that it, it confronts really some, uh, raises some pretty significant issues uh, with regard to uh, the body of, of the Lord Jesus um, and uh, whether or not uh, his body is um, a human body or if it's a mixture. And that's one of the, you know, in, in the creeds, um, it speaks of the natures not being mixed. Um, uh, there were heresies that confused and mixed the natures, the divine and the human. And uh, the, the Orthodox have always professed historically uh, that the natures of Christ were um, uh, kept separate one from another, distinct from one another. Uh, and so uh, that again, I think, would be a reason why we would understand uh, this not to be a bodily presence in the uh, Lord's Supper, but rather a spiritual presence. As we've noted, I think there is good reason to believe that Jesus is spiritually present. And uh, that, that is, again, the, uh, the position of reform. We do not want to uh, uh, be mere memorialists, that we're simply memorializing Christ's death and resurrection or death on the cross. Uh, but we want to uh, uh, understand that there's a communion, there's a sharing, there's a partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Uh, spiritually through faith uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of the Lord's Supper. I Also, I think it's important to point out that the only sacrifice in the Lord's Supper uh, is the sacrifice of our lips, the sacrifice of our praise and thanksgiving to the Lord uh, that we find, for example, uh, in uh, Hebrews 13, uh, 15, uh, where there it speaks of the uh, kind of sacrifice that we offer to the Lord. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's our sacrifice. That's the only sacrifice that we find uh, actually uh, uh, real sacrifice uh, uh, is the sacrifice of our lips, of our heart unto the Lord. There is no repeated sacrifice of Jesus Christ uh, in the Lord's Supper. Uh, contrary, again, to uh, to the position of Rome 
that uh, would teach that there is an actual sacrifice, a real sacrifice of Christ uh, in the Mass, uh, that is, uh, that it is a, a sacrifice that is uh, of Jesus Christ, a repeated sacrifice of, of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, listen uh, very closely. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 18. By the, the which will, that is the will of Christ, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He sat down on the right hand of God, then how can he again be bodily present every time that the um, Lord's Supper is administered, uh, whether the Lutheran view or the Roman Catholic view? Unless the, unless the right hand of God uh, is not somewhere specific, spatially located. Uh, if the right hand of God is inter interpreted to be anywhere throughout the whole world, um, then, and, and uh, if that's the interpretation, then that would be um, the way in which, I guess, to avoid what's so obvious there. Verse 13, from henceforth, that is from the hand, uh, right hand of God, expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering, again, notice not repeated offerings, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. And then verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So, Paul is saying that where there is the repetition of sacrifices that reminds the people that their sins have not been forgiven. That's what, was, that's what he's saying with regard to the priesthood in the Old Testament. It brought, to, it brought to them time and time again because they had to offer repeated sacrifices that there wasn't, there wasn't a final remission of sin. Now, again, is that not what um, uh, those who would say that there is a repeated sacrifice of Christ at the time of the Mass would that not be what they are basically saying that the sins of God's people, the sins uh, for which Jesus died, have not been forgiven because there's this continual offering repeatedly. Whereas Paul says here in chapter 10, it's, there's one offering. It's not going to be repeated. I think that's, again, very, very important to our understanding. Um, 
which is the gospel. Uh, we, we do not have to put Christ up again and again and again to be sacrificed. He sacrificed once and for all. I'm going to stop there, um, uh, and we won't get to verse 32 um, t t tonight because I think we've kind of reached the uh, near the end of our hour. But I I just want to encourage you as we uh, end on this note uh, for us to really take such great joy uh, that uh, uh, according to the biblical view and understanding uh, of the Lord's Supper that it is not indeed a re-sacrificing a re-offering of Christ time and time and time again that the only sacrifice that's involved in the Lord's Supper is our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that is offered to him not his sacrifice at all and let us rejoice that that is a finished. When Jesus said, it is finished, uh, that again means paid in full. There isn't any more offering for sin. There isn't any more sacrifice to be offered. Praise God that uh, he has uh, finished it all with his death upon the cross. And he certified that it was finished by his resurrection. Had he remained in the grave, uh, we would have no confidence that it was finished. But the fact that he was raised from the dead was his stamp, was his seal, uh, that indeed the Father had accepted his one sacrifice for the sins of all of his people. And let us rejoice and be glad uh, that we have been set free by his grace from our sin and that he will... Uh, Sanctify us, yes, in this life because the remnant of sin is still there, but the judicially uh, our sins before God have all been pardoned. And now when we come to the Lord daily, it's not, we do not come before the Lord with our sins before God is judge any longer, but we come before the Lord confessing our sins to God as a reconciled Father, that we might continue to enjoy fellowship and communion with Him. Our sin hinders our fellowship, uh, but it does not, again, have anything to do with our judicial forgiveness uh, that is once and for all accounted to us uh, by the death of Christ. Amen. Let us uh, stand in prayer. Father in heaven, how we praise thee and thank thee for that one sacrifice of the Lord Jesus and that uh, we uh, are forever forgiven uh, once and for all uh, through that sacrifice. It is not a sacrifice to be repeated. It is indeed in the Lord's Supper that we remember that one sacrifice and that we avail ourselves continually of the grace of God uh, uh, through that one once uh, offered sacrifice. And so his grace continues to flow unto us as we do delight and as we do partake of the Lord's Supper. 
uh, but uh, there is not a second or a third or a fourth or any subsequent sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we praise thee because in that, that there is no subsequent sacrifice, Paul teaches us that our sins are indeed forgiven. And we, we rest in that truth. Thanking thee and praising thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, any questions? Okay, yeah, any, any questions uh, uh, at all uh, from the study this evening? Yes, Angie. Not so much a question, but a comment. Mm-hmm. When it comes to whether Judas was present or not, mm-hmm. not that you shouldn't I mean, investigate, I guess, but at the end of the day, there's always sons and daughters of perdition, even today, in the Lord's Supper, and only the Lord knows who was who. Yeah. And so you... I mean, it kind of it just seems silly to wor- worry about from that perspective mm-hmm. um, whether he was present or not because right you you have the same thing today yeah know? yeah none of us are omniscient Jesus was uh, uh, knew the condition of uh, Judas but um, yeah, if he was present in the Lord's Supper you know there's no uh, doctrine or something that in, in my mind is compromised um, I think again um, it is simply a controverted question maybe some people make more out of it than, than they should uh, but uh, it, it's, it, to me it, it's not uh, something that one way or the other that is going to uh, change really anything that I already believe so yeah I just had a comment it, it seems like when it comes to uh, the oh gosh, the uh, you know bodily presence of Christ, it seems like the Catholics have a less silly idea than the Lutherans on this one. Less silly. Yeah. You, it's like, it seems more that uh, between the two positions, that the <laughs> idea of changing into the body of Christ rather than surrounding it, uh, it the it, element. So all of a sudden you have like a little bit more in your stomach than you thought. Mm-hmm. I guess it's just a little bit. That's yeah. just kind of stupid. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it, yeah, I, that's why I, I, you know, I think that both uh, positions, as I said, fall under basically whatever objections that we might offer um, to a bodily presence. They, I think that they both fall under the same objections. Yeah. All right. Thank you all for joining us this, this evening. <laughs>